0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Philemon 1-3. through Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And Apphia, our sister. And Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Aaron. Well, um, I know it was kind of funny when you see Philemon 1 through 3. Some of you may say, first, what is Philemon? Uh, that is actually uh, the smallest letter that Paul wrote in the Bible, and one through three, uh, you may have thought, "Man, we're going to read three chapters." That's pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> aggressive. Actually, one through three, there's only one chapter of Philemon. Uh, it's a very short um, letter that we're going to look at for the next four weeks, um, including today, and uh, really excited about that. I've never actually preached through it, and. Uh, And um, I've read it, you know, but never uh, preached through it. And uh, it's exciting. You know, I, uh, there's a number of people even in the first service I was talking to that I went with on this. Uh, Last year, last couple of years, really, I've really enjoyed kind of like delving into comedy. And not just like watching it or listening to it, but like the processes behind it, the craft. You know, there's things like uh, comedians in cars getting coffee on Netflix, I'm sure you've seen that, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, and uh, with a number of comedians. And um, one of the things that's great about that show isn't just that's funny to see these people in the car and what Chikari chooses and those, but he actually gets into the craft of comedy and kind of unpacks for each person uh, how they approach it. And uh, I really enjoy that. And uh, one, some of the people in the, f- the first service I was able to go with to see Frank Caliendo. I don't know if you know who that is. Remember, uh, he used to do all those great impressions of uh, John Madden back in the day. And he, he's an incredible impressionist. Uh, he was on like Fox Sports and with like Terry Bradshaw and all those people. He's done a lot of that kind of stuff. And uh, it was amazing. And, and the thing that night, it was at Zaney's or whatever. He, he was talking to us about, he was kind of working through some new material. And as he did that, he was kind of also giving us his process for how he learns people's voices. And so, yeah, he's so amazing. If you ever watch him or watch an impressionist who's really good at this, Uh, they can, he could switch. He he literally did the impressions of the last three presidents and had a conversation between the three of them. So like he would, it was unbelievable to be able to switch almost like another language between each of them. And so, but what I noticed throughout his routine, as people would throw out a name and he would be able to do an impression, it was just amazing. He would count from one to 10 in that person's voice. And one, two, three, yeah, I'm not gonna try it. Uh, I'm not an impressionist, but that's kind of like what he'd do. he begin, and you would hear him take that person's inflections, phonic sounds, all of those things, and put them, run them through counting one to 10 and as he did that, each of the numbers, he could begin to learn and craft their voice in his head. And then he was like, got it, boom. And he would do it. And he was kind of teaching us how he did that. And it was, it was so subtle, you could miss it. And I was just like, man, that, that's incredible how he could take anybody and he just counts to 10 and he runs their whole personality and their uh, voice through those numbers. And there it is. You know, the, the Apostle Paul, when he writes... Uh, particularly in his letters. Now, this is his smallest of his letters. And maybe if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Philemon might be very unfamiliar to you. It's one of those, if you're flipping, you would flip right past it. Like I said, it's, not, it's one chapter. So it doesn't even have chapter one, verse three. It's just one, verse one, verse three, you know, those kind of things. And it's a small letter that's distinct uh, for Paul because it's written to a person. Different than many of his other letters before that were written to churches, this one is specifically written to a person named Philemon. But similarly to all his letters, what it does, and Paul does this with a lot of things, if you read any of his letters to churches, what he does is he takes a practical application, say, money. Or um, you know power, or in this case, it talks about uh, masters and slaves and slavery, and he runs it through the t- counting the ten of the gospel. So essentially, what he does is he says, "Okay, let's look at money and giving and charity." He says, "Don't don't just get. It's not just a ten percent rule. It's not just these kind of things." He says, "That one who became." who was so rich, that is Jesus, became so poor that through his you know, poverty, you might become rich. And it is through that lens, through that understanding of your money, your generosity, that you open your hands to give. You see what he does? He, he takes that practical thing of everyday life and he counts to 10, does the caliendo, a sense, through that practical application of the gospel. And that's what this letter is. The letter of Philemon written uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome and kind of the late, the, uh, the early 60s, late in Paul's life, was written to a specific slave owner or master named Philemon. And his slave actually ran away at some point where there's a little bit of, uh, you know, debate on why or how, but He probably either stole something or got in trouble somehow, ran from home. And to what's the best place to go hide? Rome. It's a huge city. No one could, you know, stand out. And you'll hear a little bit more about slavery in the ancient world, different than what we have, the concept of our American type slavery. But he hides in Rome. And by God's sheer providence, runs into who? the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't actually know how, but God causes them to run into each other, and the Lord brings Onesimus, the slave, to Christ through Paul. And now Paul's writing back to his, this master to say, hey, I know this was your slave. I know he owes you a great debt. I know there's a lot there, but let's talk about how do you now see Onesimus and him as your slave through the lens of him now being your brother in Jesus. That'd be a hard thing to do. You see, you have to run it through that application. You have to count to 10 of how does this application in life run through the gospel? And so that's what we're gonna do. For the next four weeks, we're gonna look at particularly this letter. And if you wanna know uh, anything about social justice, how do we approach social justice as Christians? This is the letter for you. This letter takes it in a short 25 verses and says, here's how we as godly men and women who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are to count to 10 about what it looks like for us to approach social justice. And by the way, in their day and time, they did not have that category. So I'm using social justice in our cultural category. They made sense of it in a different way. And we'll look at that. And now we're gonna look at two points from this. You're like, these three verses, this introduction to this letter that was written. We're gonna look at grace and peace as our two points. What is grace and what is peace? And how does that play out in this letter? It was written to Philemon and Apphia, possibly, probably his wife and his son Archippus and to the church that met in their home. So let's look at this together. And the central theme here of this is grace in relationships. Now, not just like, Okay, at first you're like, okay, isn't that everything? But in this letter, particularly written to one person, greetings were normally written in order. So like it says, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and then Apphia and Archippus, and then this house in your church. Now you wrote a greeting in an order to which the letter was written. So this normally by Paul is written to, to the church at Colossae, right? Or to the church at Philippi. This is written to Philemon addressing this personal relationship of how do you make sense now of this wealthy owner of this home who had invited the church in, which was very common in that time, to have the church in their house and to be able to serve and care for them. How does he now address and mediate this relationship of now Onesimus, the slave with him, and Philemon. Right now I'm doing a lot of premarital counseling with friends uh, that are in our church, which has been really sweet. And uh, I do that a lot in our church. It's a joy for me. I've done uh, a number of couples even in this room and um, I'm doing some now. And one of the things I do uh, when I sit down with a couple is before we sit in the room and have like the actual sessions, I like to sit and over coffee, or uh, you know, at a pub somewhere and just have an informal session to kind of say, hey, here's where, the, here's where we're going. This is what it's gonna look like. And what I typically say is, you know, here are all the things you'll receive and here's where we're gonna walk through, but I say, here's how I approach uh, premarital counseling here. And it's not we're not gonna go through a workbook and we're not just gonna you know, have these kind of like check mark boxes. It's actually, we're gonna talk about the patterns and ways that you relate to one another and talk about what are the tools that you can be given through the gospel to to approach one another in that. Even recently, I was talking to a couple here here today, and uh, I know one of the people more, oh, maybe a little longer than the other person. And I've been asked that question before. Do I, you know, uh, you know them a little better, but I say, "I, I don't, but I don't know you together. And that's the point, right? is how do I mediate, how do I come in and help you see the patterns so that you have the tools to navigate your relationship long after I'm not in this room with you? And that's what Paul is doing in this letter. Paul's writing a letter to Philemon to say, hey, I wanna talk to you graciously about who you are, Philemon, and that's what we'll actually look at next week. He spends an enormous amount of time encouraging Philemon uh, and even in the beginning here you see a dear friend and fellow worker he's not he's not shaming Philemon he's writing to help him see hey who Onesimus is now you once had this relationship with him but now this is a very different person before you and so that, to, to, to keep going here let's let's unpack a couple of things one is he talks about the the church that meets in your home, and let's think about the culture too that's surrounding this. Now first, why is it in their house? They had to meet in homes. Now I know that a lot of people in this room have heard or their house churches and stuff like that. In their time, they had to meet in homes. It was not a, well, do you wanna have a house church? Do you wanna meet in this building? Or you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't an option, it was a mandate because the authoritarian government of Rome really put the clamp down on Christians and persecution was rampant. So to open your home to have this church was a very gracious thing, and it could be a major risk, especially for somebody like Philemon, who was wealthy and very notable. And as he did that, one of the things that he's doing is bringing in people into his life. And the culture of slavery in that time, is gonna be a, a, something we talk about for the next three, four weeks, was both similar and different than what we know in our American culture. Uh, At this time in slavery, you could take the Roman Empire, you could take any city in it, and a one third of the population was slaves. So it was so embedded in their culture, in their life, in the economic workings, uh, the social trappings, that, that, that you could just pass by it and not even think about it. One third of the population. That's, it's, it's amazing. And often those that were enslaved, weren't. it wasn't just by force. It was also volunteered because it could be a really good economic value if you're in trouble or needed help. Also, when Rome conquered places like a whole city, that city could often be completely brought into slavery. So they wouldn't become citizens, they would become enslaved of the Roman Empire. And many times the slavery then, they were educated. And, and often when they took over a whole city, that place, that region could be even more educated than those who took it over. So you had a very different understanding in that regard. Where it was very similar, though, was slaves were considered second class, property, rights. There were even legal things in the Roman law about what slaves could and could not do. And oftentimes, especially in this case, and you don't even see it as we look at the book of Philemon, it's talked about in terms of, okay, yes, you have your rights, Philemon, You'll hear him say that. Paul said it a lot. You have your rights towards Anismus. He has done wrong. There are things that he has possibly owes you back. There are debts. There are ways that he owes you in this legally. But how do you approach this through now a new lens in Christ? Not getting rid of the cost that is needed, but what does it look like to take in that cost? What does it look like to have that? Slaves before that institution, listen to 20 years before this letter was written, Paul wrote Corinthians. Listen to what he says about slavery there. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, "'Were you a slave when you were called? "'Don't let it trouble you. "'Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. "'For the one who was a slave "'when called to faith the Lord Jesus Christ uh, "'is the Lord's freed person. "'Similarly, the one who was free "'when called to Christ, slave.'" is Christ's slave. You were brought, bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Paul's doing something massive, revolutionary. What he is saying is, look, you are a slave. If you can gain your freedom as a slave, beautiful, wonderful. But don't ever forget that your true freedom actually comes through Christ. And you may be a master, you may be someone, you'd never been enslaved to anyone, but you're actually enslaved and will always be enslaved to your true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. He uses even that slave legal language. Do you see what he's doing? He's counting the 10. He's, ta- he's saying, no matter whether you are a slave or a master, you are now both equal partners in relationship through Jesus Christ that is huge. It is incredibly revolutionary because what it does is it forces both Onesimus who is scared, can you imagine being sent back to someone you've done wrong? And Philemon who probably demands his rights. We'll look at more of that in the next weeks. But it calls them both to bend the knee to humility so how you actually, as a follower of Jesus, see yourself through who you are in Jesus. See everyone around you through that, to make sense of that partnership in Christ. It changed that altogether. Now it didn't do, no, notice what Paul's not doing. We're going to look at this further. He's not addressing or doing away with the institution of slavery. He first goes at the heart of where slavery comes. No, Nothing about institutions will change ultimately if those within it do not understand how to change it. And the deepest thing that goes to our hearts is who we are first in Christ. It is through that personal relationship. This is what Steve Martin, another great, comic said, I think, beautifully. And his, if you read his book, Born Standing Up, he actually begins it with his beauty. You know, I don't know if you know this, Steve Martin came and taught at Vanderbilt University at one point, taught comedy there. And he did shows that like exit in. And if you read his book, he'll talk, he talks some about like, he would lead crowds down the street, you know, doing comedy routines. It was really, yeah, that's very Steve Martin, hilarious. But the very beginning of his book says this, listen to this. This book is not an autobiography, and he reads it himself if you listen to it on, uh, uh, on a podcast or book. Um, but he says, this is not an autobiography, but a biography, because I'm writing about someone I used to know. You know what this is getting at is, okay, Philemon, I'm writing you about someone you used to know. And someone who does owe you a great debt, but that is not the same person that left you before. An element of, uh, of this, and I don't know if you do this, um, I read the Bible, sometimes I'll listen to it on an app. You know, many people now have the Bible on their, on their phone and on an app. I'd strongly encourage you to do this. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a, a little challenge to our church at the end here, just to say, how, how much can we read Philemon over these next four weeks? You can read it, you can listen to it in a car drive on the way to work, it's like that. But you know, when you do that, you hear someone read it to you, you hear things that pop out differently, sometimes you read it just in front of you. And one of the things that I noticed over and over in this was the way that Paul says to Philemon, I I could order you to do this. I could compel you to love him. I could compel you to do X, Y, Z, but I'm not going to. You know why? Because what should compel you is the gospel. Knowing yourself in the gospel and knowing your relationship with him. See, that's what Paul does. He begins to say, Philemon, you have to start running this relationship of what he is in social class to you through this. And that's the big question for us is what are the relationships we don't and ways that we don't run everything around us through that? We have people in their positions, their spots, their places. But what really transforms us if it is the good news of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, if it really does, it really, it compels us not to be guilty to care for people around us in that way, but to actually say, you know what makes the church different than anything else? Isn't that we call out for social justice, is that we just enter into it. See, that's the other word here is peace. Peace. It begins with grace, which is a Greek word that most of them would recognize. And it's not like a, like a deeply <clears throat> you know, Jewish word necessarily. You see it some in the Old Testament, but it was more of a New Testament word carrying out the charity and grace of that. But then he couples it with peace, which is a deeply Hebraic word. And it means, it's the word shalom. It's the word we hear, but it's not just peace of mind. He says, if you really understand grace, if you really understand the grace that has come to you, you will run everything through that and you will begin to live out the peace of the gospel. See, peace for them was different than well-being. It addressed the total flourishing of everything around you. People, places, and things. Everything. It meant a flourishing delight relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's God's bringing the harmonious work that he intended to this world. That's what peace is. That's what what it means. It's it's used often for the welfare and completeness of specifically other people. Uh, I was listening to an old sermon I've heard before. I've actually taught on this passage in Proverbs and Psalms before. But I heard Tim Keller again, and he's just, Always teaching us. He's a pastor in uh, New York City who really talks a lot about. He went through a, a, a series on Proverbs years, I and mean, we're talking years ago. And I heard him teach on this. Again, it's one I even preached on. And I don't, he obviously, missed it. Um, but he brought out an understanding of what, this from Psalm 102 when the Lord compares creation to a garment and a weaving in a tapestry. And he, say, he says it like this. He says, the, the, that's such a rich picture for us to understand, this garment that's woven together. Because think about it. If you have a garment, you have these threads that are interwoven. But if you take just a bunch of threads and lay them on a table, you don't have anything. You just have a bunch of threads. But what peace and shalom is, is that the Lord has taken all those and woven them together tightly and beautifully. And and what injustice really is, and why the Lord is calling to justice, what, what that really means is, is us reweaving where it's been rent apart, broken apart. That sin has broken it apart, both in our own lives and all around us. Uh, let's just take the ultimate. We just looked at this three weeks ago, death. But why, why the resurrection? Okay. What is death itself? Death is is us being separated. It's our bodies breaking down. Even within our bodies, physically, chemically, it's the actual breaking down. This is why when you get injured, you hurt. What what happens when you you, have, it breaks apart, right? What is the resurrection? The resurrection is the Lord Jesus conquering that, coming in and bringing back together, what? Not only us spiritually, but physically. That's what he's doing. Uh, here's another uh, great, just totally different illustration. When uh, the flood, some of you all have heard me talk about the flood happened in our neighborhood. Our whole neighborhood had all this, this flood. And what happens when those disasters happen? <laughs> things just go apart. Buildings, things floating downstream. we were just laughing this week about like this thing floated up. You know, one thing floated down, another one floated up. We're like, even Steven, we got a, we got a, you know, a new wagon. There it is. Things just pull apart. You know what brought back together was watching people pull up in trucks, people giving us sandwiches, gift cards, phone calls. What, what's happening there? Coming together, the reweaving of relationship, reweaving of economy. You see what's happening? That is shalom. That's the beauty of it. And I love it. David Brooks, one of my uh, favorite op-ed writers, he, he said this about kind of, uh, he, he would not necessarily talk about shalom, but he was kind of getting to what is true justice as Christians. He said, and he's stealing a line from uh, someone, but he says, the line of good and evil no longer runs through our hearts, but between groups. And what he was getting at, he's stealing a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, the line of good and evil runs through your hearts, great line what he's saying is now as a great cultural commentator that David Brooks became a Christian about six, seven years ago. And he said, now what he sees is not that the line we think we have enough humility to see the evil and injustice in ourselves. We're pointing at everyone else saying, we're good and they're evil. We're saying we're just and they're unjust. But do you see what peace does? Do you see what grace and peace does? It doesn't let you afford that. You can't look at other people. You can't look at that's unjust and I'm okay. It has to begin here. See, social justice, which is the phrase that we know of now, is huge and important only if it runs through the count to 10 of the gospel. If we don't run social justice through What we know of the good news, it just becomes more of our own social power. It becomes claiming that's evil and I'm good. But how do we know that if we don't know how the harmony, the peace that God himself, the creator, and the just one is to make this world? See, we only make sense of it that. Look, the, the, the early church didn't ever use the phrase social justice. They didn't even think of it. They couldn't even do it. And you know why? Because it was such an authoritarian government. So you know what they did? They just saw where the holes and problems were and they just went to it. Justice to them, they saw where it was being ripped apart. They didn't say, how do we create social justice as in needing of programs or needing of this or needing to have this voice? They just went in and took in the orphans that the Roman empire was throwing out. They took in the women that were unwilling to be, they were unwilling to educate them. And they said, we will bring you in and not only love you, but educate you in the gospel. This is why some of the first hospitals, the first banks, some of the first Institutions that we even benefit from now began through that understanding, not through, hey, first we need to create a system. It was first, how do we run it all through that good news? And here's the thing it, the gospel, look, and, and some of you in this room, and some people, I even said this earlier, some people get really like wound up around the axle of, is this social gospel? No, no, no. What this is, is the gospel drives you to social life. That is acts. This isn't me saying you need to start a program. This is you understanding how do we make sense of getting into this world and seeing where does the darkness exist that we need to bring light. It could be as simple as someone impressed at your work. It could be as simple and it's not just the, the ways that we see the person on the street corner and we think we need to give money to them. It's the ways we actually need to enter into life. This is one reason we actually, do and this sounds like a shameless plug, but it's true. This is why we do city groups in our church is that we've decided that we don't wanna do like a big program at one time a year or one week or one weekend or an hour. We actually want groups that go into the deep needs of the city around us and not just share money or time, but our lives as well. And it is very important to give our money. It is very important to do those things, but it's also important that we are giving of ourselves. That is something we see around us. It could be someone as a neighbor. It could be darkness at our our kids' schools. It could be all sorts of those things. The ways that we speak the gospel into those things. You know, one of the greatest illustrations of this is um, of living shalom, I think is still Les Mis. Have you ever seen, I'm sure you've either seen the movie, I'm sure everybody's seen the like three, four different movies they put out, Les Rob. Or read the book, if anybody I don't how many I'd be so you don't raise your hand. I'd be so curious how many people have actually read the book Les Miserables. But um but we've seen the musical, so we know what happens. Um if you haven't, I'd see it. I still cry every time I see it. It's so powerful. And it is about this man named Jean Valjean, who is a crook. The very beginning starts that way, where he is uh really this this thief. He stays in a, a monastery to find shelter for an evening, uh, steals and is caught and then broken back, brought back into the monastery to face the priest with the, the, uh, the, you know, the police around him. All for the priest to say to him, instead of saying, yep, this is the guy who stole my stuff, he said, oh, you also forgot the candlesticks and this I wanted you to sell. And all of a sudden you realize what he's doing is showing him severe mercy. And there's this huge song where Jean Valjean says, I'm staring into the whirlpool of my sin. A new life must begin. And he sees his own heart and he receives the mercy and justice there. And he begins. And the next scenes after that are him when he's become a mayor of the city. And he's actually applying the mercy that he had in the ways of practice in his governing. And it's not just him like calling court. He actually sees people where wagons need pulled out of a ditch. You know, like stuff like that they show you or you read and you hear about. And it, it's those everyday things. And that's what's so beautiful about that. The whole, and, and what happens? What? The whole musical is about the law, Javert, and Jean Valjean, mercy. And how do you make sense of both those? Right? You could walk away from this going, God, do I just feel guilt? Do I just feel shame? But the difference is, and this is actually what happens in the musical, is that Jean Valjean realizes, and Javert is so faced with it, he can't even hold on to his own mortality when he runs into real mercy. But Jean Valjean realizes that his whole life has to, to be with the justice that he deserved and didn't receive. That's what this table tells you. This is a table of grace and peace. It's a table of uh, that you and I can't come to because there is no amount of the line in our own hearts that we can discern that we need the Lord Jesus. The one who was unjustly tried, punished, and even laid in an unmarked grave, a borrowed tomb so that he might take the all the justice that we deserve to lay on us so that we may receive the mercy that we get, the grace, unmerited favor that you have. And you know what? When he raises from the dead, there's something that he does interesting. And when he speaks to his disciples and he's There in the flesh. And he says, my peace I give to you. And he's not just saying that as like a sweet phrase, like, oh, he's raised from the dead. What a nice thing to say. What he's saying is, my peace I give you. My shalom from my redemption in and through this world I give to you. That's now happening in you. When you come and take from this table, you're receiving not only the grace of the Lord Jesus, but you're tasting the shalom that even when you don't know it's working, the Holy Spirit is at work feeding you by faith to make you more and more like Jesus so that when you leave these doors out of the presence of any of this liturgy and discussion, that you continue to live the shalom of the Lord Jesus in every element of your life. That's the grace and peace that you get to have. And if you're here this morning and you're, and you're struggling with that, maybe you're kind of like, I don't, I don't know if I really believe Jesus or follow him, then I would encourage you not to come take of this table, but fold your hands, receive a benediction as you come forward or stay in your seat. Just contemplate it. Make sense of it. Don't don't come take of it just because everybody else does. That would be disingenuous. Come forward only knowing that the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus is over you. Amen.